Today's episode is brought to you by Unfettered Capitalism. Just like the song goes, this land is my land, this land was your land. But through shady practices and extensive billing for rent, I now own it. And if you want it back, you'll have to beat me. In a round of the Japan-only 1993 title, Wiley and Wright's Rockboard. That's paradise on this episode of What Am I Podcasting For? Hello again. Welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Garlisle, and this show is my attempt to play through the entire Mega Man series, from Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the 100-plus games in between as I can. Today marks a bit of a special episode. This episode marks our first foray into games that were never released in the West, for, for good reason, as we'll get into as we discuss what this game actually is. And second off, this game isn't a platformer. Even when we traveled onto the Game Boy or <laughs> into DOS, we remained true to the core Mega Man formula of jump and shoot man. For some reason, though, when 1993 rolled around, Capcom decided they wanted to make a Mega Man game that was a little bit different. In fact, it's as far away from an action-heavy platformer as you could get. Rockboard is a board game? Now, it is still an NES title. We're still playing a video game here, but it is a board game in video game form. I could almost just about sum up the game and walk away from it by saying that it is slightly more complex Monopoly. That isn't quite doing it justice. Neither is comparing it to Itadaki Street or Fortune Street, if you know that series, which began a couple years prior and was the same sort of idea of a finance-oriented board game. Listen, as far as decisions about what genre they could have taken Mega Man, deciding, hey, we're going to make a competitive finances board game. What? <laughs> I I want to be in the boardroom 28 years ago when this game got pitched, because what? <laughs> as mentioned, this game did not actually leave Japan. I, I presume probably because it wasn't quite successful enough. In fact, it wasn't even successful enough to get its own port. There was a point in time at which there was going to be a Game Boy release of this game, which fascinatingly actually would have had battery-backed mid-game saving, which this NES version didn't, but I guess that makes sense. You don't want to get into like a three-hour board game session only to have your Game Boy die on you. That would be crushing. But that port got cancelled, so I have to presume the original rock board release on NES just didn't do very well. Also, something of note is that at this time in gaming history, Nintendo of America, at least, had a very, very draconian content restrictions and, like, oversight on games. Like, we joke about it sometimes today about, like, companies censoring things, but you have to understand, there was strict limitations, and if you did not meet those limitations, your game cartridge did not get certified. It didn't get the tech to actually work in the NES. There are entire things you can look into about the history of this. You could not explicitly mention, like, God or other deities, or the devil for that matter. You couldn't use religious symbols similarly. This would all make it very difficult in about a year when Capcom would publish Breath of Fire 2 in North America, a game that is very opaquely about religious belief and spiritualism. But anyway, among other restrictions that were on play, gambling had to be very, very closely monitored and watched, and that probably also factored into them not wanting to bring it to the West. 
After all, we were still in an era where video games were for children. While you could, like, board game convert Monopoly or something over, and that would, you know, people would understand that. This one has some segments of, like, pseudo-betting on horse racing, met racing. We'll get there, we'll get there. Point is, is there's a few different reasons that this game probably never came out in the West. Chief among which is, honestly... I don't think this is a very good game. I don't think it's terrible, but let's start digging into the specifics and like how this actually plays and what it looks like, and I'll try not to be too boring, I promise. When you boot up the game, the first thing the game will ask you to do is pick the number of players. You have the choice to play with anywhere from zero to four different human players using hot seat controls, and then, depending accordingly to that, anywhere from zero to four different computer players. It is a four-player game. You need at least two people. Each player will have the choice of one of five different characters to play as. You can play as Dr. Light, Dr. Wily, Roll, Dr. Light's assistant, which I almost want to say, unless I like am forgetting off the top of my head her being like in a cutscene somewhere, this might be the first time we've actually seen Roll in one of the video games, and especially her first playable opportunity. But also, filling out the roster, you have the opportunity to play as Dr. Cossack or his daughter Kalinka from Mega Man 4. Yeah, that's right, you don't play as Mega Man in this game. Each character, story-wise, insofar as there is a story, basically has a different purpose they want to achieve through growing their financial empire. Light wants to foster world peace, Wily's here for world conquest, surprise. Roll wants to build a whole bunch of hospitals and essentially spread healthcare to the masses. Kalinka just wants to build a whole bunch of castles and pretend she's a princess. Apparently a really sweet kid, not self-absorbed at all. And all Cossack cares about is getting a bunch of research laboratories out there so he can science as hard as he wants. Each character is actually a little bit different. We'll get into a mechanic about it later, but it's only it's only a small occasional random difference. Afterwards, you'll choose the game style of competition that you want, which is either Bankrupt or Battle Royale rules. Bankrupt is closer to Monopoly. The game will continue until one of the players is literally out of funds and cannot sell anything to obtain those funds. Battle Royale rules, by comparison, actually set goals for the maps. That essentially, players can be defeated before they are met, but more likely the game will actually run much shorter once somebody achieves a significant enough lead. The last major option that you are given is to pick from the four different boards. They are Green Continent, which is based on South America, Cold Island, which is based on Antarctica, the Continent of Sand, which is based on Africa, and Megalopolis, which is based on the US, because apparently that's an entire continent. Once you do that, you'll jump into the board and we can begin to play the game. The turn order is fairly much what you would expect when I say that it is similar to Monopoly. You roll a dice, in this case it's a roulette wheel from 1 to 8. You are traveling along a board, space by space, in a pretty linear direction. When you land on a space, if it's an effect space, something will happen, which we'll get into the different kind of spaces. But most of the spaces on the board are actually essentially properties. One of the key ways that this game is differentiated from Monopoly is that the person who owns the property is not necessarily the person who builds on the property. Each property has an initial buyer, who is the first person who lands on it, who essentially owns the land itself. After that, 
anybody who lands on that space can choose to build a lab on that space. And only one person can build a lab, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the person who actually owns the land. Any income that comes from people landing on those spaces gets split between the person who owns the land itself and the person who is building and upgrading the lab on that space. Also, if you have enough money after paying that rent, you can choose to buy the lab itself or even just buy the land itself. Stealing labs or lands from other players will pay out the money to that player themselves instead of just into the ether, so you're always funding an opponent's chance to come back if this happens. But at the same time, going out of your way to steal labs and land from other players can be beneficial because you can increase the value of land by having multiple connected lots owned by the same person or by having multiple connected labs owned by the same person. All these things act as multipliers that can take land from having like a 60, 70 zenny rent cost to almost four to five grand. And I did say zenny. This is, interestingly, this is the game that pinned down the idea that the Mega Man universe currency is called zenny. It's just marked with a little z. I feel like we're not going to see that brought up in a Mega Man game again for quite a while, but it's a consistent element of the games. Yeah, this game actually has impact on the universe's canon, so here we are. After you take your move and the characters have reacted to it, you'll have like characters cursing you out for stealing their land or like cheering when something good happens for them because you just landed and spent a ton of money to them or whatever. Then it goes on to the next turn. And I mean, it's fairly typical of what you expect from a board game. It is a degree more complicated Monopoly. God, I've said Monopoly how many times already this episode? Dear Lord. And to be fair, if you're going to make that game a little bit more complex mathematically, video game space is probably a good idea to do it, because in a video game, the game itself can handle all the awkward calculations of who gets what and how much, and what is this place actually worth, yada yada. This basically loops until, as mentioned, either somebody bankrupts or you meet certain conditions. There is default conditions on Battle Royale mode for each map which involves having a certain amount of zenny worth of assets, and on some of the maps having either a set number of spaces owned as a landowner or labs built in total. Interestingly, if you pop open the options menu during your turn, you have the opportunity to change these rules mid-game, which is a little bit cheating, but also I kind of understand that you don't have the opportunity to edit them before the game begins, and you might decide with your friends or whatever, hey, I want to go longer, or hey, we're done. Essentially, as a player, you do actually have the opportunity to just decide, hey, I'm just going to end the game here. Another thing you can do, which is, like, actually really interesting and forward-thinking, you can go in and you can change who's actually a human controlling a character versus who's a computer-controlled character. So if your friend just came by, they can drop in and take over, or if somebody has to go early, you can continue the game without having to just bring it to a complete stop, because there isn't a save or anything in this game. You have to do the entire thing in one sitting, and it takes about, well, it takes longer than I'd like. I will tell you right now, running this game at two times speed, most matches of this game still took me about an hour and a half to two hours to finish the board, and that's if you set the tech speed to fast and stuff. This is a fairly lengthy game. Anyway, I'll dig in now to the different kinds of stages and what makes each stage different and the kinds of obstacles you'll find on the board because you got to find something to talk about with this game.
So each of the four stages in this game comes with a different board shape with like different total sizes, different land values, but also a little bit of gameplay variation between them. The first one, Green Continent, is essentially the closest you get to just a standard Monopoly board. It is a long singular loop. There is no branch in the path. There's no nothing. It's just roll and advance that many spaces. But it does give us an opportunity to talk about some of the special spaces you can land on. The starting space on each board is an energy tank space, which is pass, go, collect 200 zenny, or, well, the amount of zenny that you actually get scales every time you loop around the board, which is kind of nice. If you land on the space directly instead of passing by it, you get various random beneficial effects, like getting double the income, or getting to upgrade a lab in a location of your choice, or drawing a card. The cards also are a mechanic that shows up on various question mark spaces throughout the game. You essentially get to draw one random card, which is a character card for any of dozens of other Mega Man characters that we've seen today. You can get boss cards, for instance, that are essentially cards that you can choose to generally use on your turn to inflict some sort of harassment on other players, like having Pharaoh Man curse an enemy so they only move one space at a time for a couple turns, or using Fireman to burn away a card that's held by another player, or having Crash Man set a bomb on an enemy's lap that blows up in a couple turns and damages it. You can get cards that have Rush on them, which generally have movement effects, like Rolling Again, or rarely getting to teleport to the space of your choice. You can get cards with Eddie on them, which generally provide you with some sort of gift, like bonus income for a few turns, or taking a little bit of money from your enemies. You can get cards with Mega Man or Proto Man, who will actually effectively act as defensive cards and protect you from assaults by your opponent. And you can get Reggae cards. Reggae was a robot introduced specifically in this game, and he has cameoed in a couple of other games since. This was his only starring significant role. He is this absolutely obnoxious-looking, fan-tailed vulture bot. He is the actual worst. Whenever you draw his card, disaster is about to hit you. He can knock out all of your spare funds. He can just show up at one of your spaces and just destroy all of your ownership of it. Drawing a reggae card is just... It is disastrous. It is nonsense. It is... Why are they... Uh, <laughs> this goddamn bird. Let me tell you, this is one of those games that is not afraid to just kind of stick up its middle fingers at you. Anyway, those are the different card mechanics. Uh, also seen on this first board is the transform space, which is... This is a weird mechanic in this game that I really do not like. If you land on the transform space and nobody else is currently transformed, you will turn into Shadow Man, Dust Man, or Guts Man. And you will be in that form until you loop through the entire board and return to that space. While you are transformed, you don't have to worry about ever paying rent, but you also can't interact with the board in basically any form. You don't even get, like, the bonus from passing the E-Tank space. What you do have a small advantage in is that if you happen to land on an opponent's lab, something bad will happen to that opponent. Shadow Man steals cards from them. Dustman drains some money from them instead of having to pay rent, and Gutsman straight up damages enemy labs whenever he lands on them. Honestly, I hate this mechanic, because unless you get Gutsman, the reality is, is its impact on the board and the game state is generally absolutely negligible, and you are just essentially taken out of the game for several turns, even more if you happen to be rolling really poorly. It's rough. I don't like it as a mechanic. 
Also seen on this first board is the tunnel space, which is essentially a chance card. There's a decent probability on this first board that you find Rush and he just bounces you to a random space somewhere on the board, but also you can get in an accident, lose some Zenny, just whatever the game feels like having happened to you happens to you when you land on this space. Speaking of the game having whatever happened to you, it feels like I forgot to bring this up earlier. I did mention that there's a difference between the characters, and it's actually fairly simple. Whenever you land on somebody else's lab, in addition to having to potentially pay them, there is a chance that they will just decide to do something rude to you. Each of the characters has a different thing that they do. Some of them are a little bit friendlier than others. For instance, if you land on Dr. Cossack's lab, he may occasionally just give the player in question an extra turn, making them roll the roulette wheel again, which isn't really that bad of a thing, oh no. Or like Wily will occasionally just force you to pay up 300 zenny, and it's small and negligible, especially with the frequency at which it happens. Roll, by comparison, is a little bit busted. If you land on one of Roll's labs, there's a chance she decides you just lose a turn. Basically, play as Roll is what I'm saying. That's how you win this game. Anyway, back to the stages. The second stage, Cold Island, is actually a little bit different and kind of neat. It's actually two loops, one large loop on the left and one small loop on the right. And in between them is the energy tank space. So while you can continue to just go in circles on one of the loops, in order to actually collect your income and keep going, you need to actually switch which of these two loops you're on. This is also made slightly more complicated and involved by the inclusion of the rush spaces on the board, which, if you land on any of them, will randomly bounce you to a different one. This is also the board that introduces the Metars at Work space, where if you land on it, you just lose a turn, because heck you. This is on all the remaining maps. There's one somewhere. I think this might actually have been my favorite map. I think just the, the shape and sort of freedom and decision-making. There is not a whole lot of decision-making in this game in terms of like actually controlling your movement, but at least having those branches and stuff to decide between was a little bit nice. The third stage, the Continent of Sand, tries to do something as well. There is a main smaller loop up at the top of the map, but as you're down going through the bottom section, you can choose to divert onto a longer loop instead that has some different spaces and some high-value properties. If you decide that you are fine taking a longer run and getting some opportunities and holdings that other players might not be going after. There were two features in this board that are worth noting. The first is the Metar space. Not the Metars at Workspace, but just the Metar space. I mentioned that there's a gambling minigame in here, and it's actually kind of adorable. The idea is the players get called to bet on a Metar race, where you have three Metars racing across identical 2D little gauntlets. Each Metar is a different variant that we've seen throughout the games. Like, there's one that has a little snorkel and moves faster underwater. There's one that, like, gets up and starts spinning, and he's fast, but he might just decide to start spinning and that's it, he's out of the race. There's one that can potentially pick himself up and fly a distance, but he might crash when he tries to land. Ultimately, it's just really cute, is what it is. It becomes a waste of time when the game starts going longer and the stakes are just not that great, but it's adorable. The other thing that is really nasty in the Continent of Sand, though, that drove me nuts is... When you land on the E-Tank space on this map, there's a decent chance that it causes an earthquake. And an earthquake will damage a run of like five or six labs somewhere on that upper loop, the main loop. And it just happens, and it doesn't care who started it. It just keeps demolishing this land, and oh, it wasn't a fun mechanic to just 
be suddenly set back by landing on a space that mostly was supposed to be advantageous to land on. Can't say I was a fan. The last area is Megalopolis, which is the U.S. theme stage. It is a long, long loop around the outside, bigger than any of the others and also more expensive. The starting funds and income are increased to match, but this is the high-stakes, high-cost finisher board for the game. Partway through the track, there is a rush space, and if you land there or if you land on the tunnel space and it decides to bring rush out for it, it will launch you onto basically a shortcut path that cuts through the middle and has its own unique spaces. Not actually a particularly exciting board, and there isn't any features that we didn't see in the previous three stages, but this ended up being the board that I spent the most time on. And here's why. There's an ending to this game. Now, of course, when you complete a board, according to whatever rule set, there is a small ending that plays, and this, this always happens. The results screen is kind of fun in a very Mario Party-feeling way, where it's showing like increasingly tall skyscrapers with each placement standing at their respective locations. And then it does kind of just a rude thing, where it will scroll back down to the bottom corner to show a completely rude skyscraper with the fourth-place player sitting down there and be like, oh, well, too bad, try harder next time. And then Reggae, the goddamn bird, will show up, land next to them, and laugh at them. The winner will get a little cutscene afterwards of their character just kind of celebrating and talking about their goals, and then it'll be on to the next board. But there's an actual ending, and if you're just playing normally, you will never find this ending. It will not happen by accident. On the fourth board, on Megalopolis, you need to be playing the Battle Royale rules, which is the you-have-an-objective-to-me rules, and then you need to use the objective menu to set the requirements obscenely high, so that the game can continue for long enough that in the final victory screen, once you do eventually complete the game, the game will actually recognize you as having at least 75% of the map under your control. Which, let me tell you, it took like three hours to do this. It was a long game, and what had started as a four-player game was down to two people, and, and my AI opponent was probably gone soon. I won't lie, I took advantage of the fact that you can change who's actually a human player and who's a computer to get myself out of potentially losing the match at least once. But the point is, is if you finish the game with at least a 75% board ownership on Megalopolis, after the character-specific ending, it will actually play a credit sequence. So what was my reward for doing all of this? Well, you get a really, really pretty scroll-through, kind of showing off all the different islands and getting to see them from a different angle, and then eventually it reaches Megalopolis, and your character kind of does like a victory dance while Mega Man stands there looking over the scene, and then they both leave, and that's it. That's it. Oh, when I found out there actually was an ending, I'm like, you know what? I, I need to do that. That needs to be the goal that I set for myself for this game. I played with default Battle Royale rules once on every single stage, and then I came back to Megalopolis to get the actual ending. I've spent more time on this game than I have any other Mega Man game to date, and suffice to say... The end result was disappointing. This is not considered a great game. I don't think it's bad. It's not good, but it's not quite bad. Maybe I'm just a sucker for board games in general, and even though I kind of hate Monopoly, I do like the multi-layered nature of the different spaces in here, how there is like this interplay between, like, do you want to actually start building on an opponent's property? Because you're not just paying money into a lab, you're also funding your opponents at the same time. But maybe that, maybe that advantage is worthwhile. 
if the boards were more involved and you had a little bit more decisions to make on where to go and the game didn't kind of move at a snail's pace sometimes and there wasn't the goddamn transform spaces, I probably might actually enjoy this game more. But those are genuine issues. Every computer player's turn, you have to watch playthrough completely. And to the game's credit, it's not like it hangs up forever on computer text displays, worried that the player won't be able to read it in time. It will immediately close the text box and get on with it. It still has all these text boxes that it has to go through, and no option to speed it up. Some of the more recent Mario Party games have been similarly criticized for this kind of thing, where it's like, yeah, if you were playing on your own, you were doing a lot of time just waiting and watching things things that aren't skippable. And I still hate the way the transform mechanic can take you basically out of the game for several turns. I hate drawing reggae cards and just having something go up in smoke. It's it's not fun, and that comes from somebody who's one of my favorite board games of all time is Dokapon Kingdom, a game that is absolutely about screwing over other players as hard as you possibly can. That is a game where there is a comeback mechanic that can reset literally hours of progress on the board because that's how it's designed, and I love it. But, and I'm not the only one who doesn't really like this game. Please understand, there are no speedruns of Rockboard. I tried finding them. Maybe I didn't look hard enough, but I couldn't find them. There are speedruns of the Mega Man DOS games. There are people who genuinely really enjoy playing those games specifically as speed games. There are no speedruns of Rockboard. Anyway, you're probably sick of listening to me talk, so let's get to some of the music. I haven't been doing as many musical breaks in this episode because this game's soundtrack is relatively small for a Mega Man game, but I will say that it's not... Honestly, the biggest problem with the soundtrack in this game is not that it's bad, it's that the music loops in this game are like 30 to 60 second loops, and that is a problem when you are spending three hours on a single board. Like, the music in some of these stages would have been completely fine in any other Mega Man game, but it does not sustain a three-hour board session with the same music. It doesn't work. I'm sorry. That said, here's three tracks I do want to highlight so you can get a taste of what the music in this is like. The first one that I want to highlight is Green Continent's music, which is actually pretty chill. It fits the environment, and it is specifically just a chill, mellow, enjoy-yourself remix of Woodman's theme. I want to highlight is maybe not anything super special, but it has something in its pacing and energy absolutely feels like it would be fitting and good as an actual Mega Man stage. Cold Island's theme. Finally, I did generally enjoy Megalopolis's 
It's good that this track is a little bit on the longer side, because I spent so much time on this, just over two playthroughs, and getting that real actual ending. There might be a bit of Crash Band going in on this track, which was also a favorite of mine, so it's pretty good. Just Again, the biggest thing holding this thing back is just that it's going to sound really nice here, but then imagine listening to it for four hours. that we are done with this game and we are free of it and i can set it aside and honestly probably not come back to it there's better board games i can play and there's a heck of a lot more Mega Man games to play for instance next week we're going to be playing Mega Man 10 already wait what what do you mean Mega Man x it x is the roman numeral for 10 it's clearly Mega Man 10 right yeah anyway next week is going to be the 10th episode and it is time to just i could use a really nice game after this so we're just going to go play Mega Man 10 after this look forward to it in the meantime here's the usual spiel if you want to get in touch about the show i am available at what am i podcasting for at gmail.com you can find me on twitter under what am i podcast for as in the number four the main distribution center for the podcast is waipf.podbean.com but you can find us on your favorite podcast service and that's probably how you found us to begin with next time we'll be doing a better game until then this has been one of my podcasting for and just remember mario party could have been a financial management game like this but it wasn't and that's why mario party was a big success that and hand blisters. Thank <laughs> you.